It's time for Branding Business, the only show that brings branding experts and corporate executives together to explore how branding your business can improve both your top-line growth and bottom-line performance. Brought to you by Rikus Baird. And now, here's your host. Hello, this is Ryan Rikus, co-founder of Rikus Baird, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going beyond brand strategy and talking with two creative minds about the process and the importance of naming and corporate identity creation. First, we'll be speaking with Drew Latinder, brand strategist and naming specialist at Rikus Baird. A little background on Drew. He has 15 years' experience in brand strategy and has worked in a number of agencies, including Addison, Salt, True Brand, in addition to his independent agency, appropriately named Definition. Drew has worked with a number of global brands across a broad spectrum of businesses, including Merrill Lynch, Avery Dennison, Epicor, Microsoft, and many others. So, Drew, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Good to be here. Well, I'm going to start off with one right between the eyes. How's that? <laughs> um, what makes for a good corporate uh, name? You know, it, it's, um, it's the question that everybody asks, and, and I think that the answer actually lies in a way outside the name. I think that, um, you know, there are all sorts of different names, obviously, uh, and they're good for different kinds of reasons. But I think context plays plays a huge role. Um, you know, there are some standard things that every name, whether it's a corporate name or a product name, has to meet, right? It's got to be trademark available. Uh, in certain cases, it's got to be UR available in an increasingly global marketplace, it's got to play in various language markets without giving offense, needless to say. So there are certain technical, I think, hurdles that, that every name has to, um, has to navigate. And there are other things like being um, uh, you know, memorable and pronounceable. We have these auditory and oral tests that we kind of put names through, you know, all, of which is, all of which is important. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, corporate names can... can communicate different things. Sometimes they will um, communicate something very close to what the business category of a corporation is, especially if it's, if it's new um, or if it's been, you know, burdened with a name that um, is got a long or old heritage and doesn't say something about the business it's in. Sometimes the, ne- the name needs to do that kind of work. It needs to identify category. Other times, that's well known about a company, so the name can be freed up to mean something different, like uh, you know what the vision of the company is, or the or the the mission, or it can express something more broad, like a persona. Um, so the answer is, you know, it depends. Um, it, it depends on what work the name needs to do, and as we've said amongst ourselves and here before, it's really a matter of what the strategy dictates, what it it tells you that name should do, because um, there are different parts of an identity of which a name is one component that can can take on those different roles. So it's a matter of determining what are the things that need to be communicated by a name, um, which things can be communicated by other messages, whether they be visual or verbal. and, and really, I think it's after you've you've crossed those technical um, parameters that I talked about earlier. It's a question of how well you meet the brief, whatever the brief, you know, the strategic or the creative brief may say. You told us a little bit about what makes a good name. 
so what, how, what's, how, what's the magic of creating a name? How, <laughs> there must be some sort of process. Maybe you can describe uh, the process that you go yeah. through in coming up with these, uh, these names. Yeah, there is a process. I mean, I think all naming is broken up into three or four chunks, the first of which is discovery, which is just understanding a business, understanding the industry it's in, understanding what its strategic vision is, um, just getting smart and intelligent about what the company is that you're naming. So that's one piece of it. Uh, the second piece of it is creating. Um, it's simply the, the raw creative process, and I'll try to get into that without giving away the, the secret recipe in a minute. Um, but that, that's simply, once you've got some intelligence about a company, then you begin to create these, these pieces of language. Um, the third piece is what we call filtration, and it goes back to all of those um, standards or metrics that I kind of talked about earlier, which is, First, you've got to run it through uh, a trademark filter. And typically, you know, we're not attorneys, so we don't do the, the comprehensive analysis uh, legally. But we know enough about the, tra- the relevant trademark issues to do a preliminary analysis before we would put anything in front of a client. So, uh, you know, things like uh, consumer confusion, dilution, uh, you know, looking, looking at common law standards, things like that. So the trademark piece is one part of it. Another part of filtration is um, just doing like a, a general Google search to see what kind of things come up. And the reason we do that in addition to or as part of the preliminary trademark search is because trademark law in the United States uh, operates according to common law principles. And common law principles will respect um, rights accrued through usage. So in other words, there could be a company out there which if they're using a name for, say, five years almost exclusively and they've got it on products and they have a designed identity around it and business materials and a website, um, ads, whatever it may be, um, the exclusive use of that stuff and that name uh, over a certain period of time um, confers rights as far as American law goes. So just going into the U.S. Patent Office database and saying, oh, you know, this company has that mark doesn't mean the story's over. Um, Someone could have registered a mark a year ago, and they could be challenged and beaten by a company that's not, um, you know, uh, registered their mark, um, but have used it in a certain way for five years. So that's an important thing to do. Um, the other thing that I talked about, uh, which sometimes is done by linguists, but we tend to do it more intuitively, which is what, what I call oral and audible test, which is, uh, is this easy to pronounce? Uh, what does it sound like? Uh, does it bear resemblance, resemblance, at least in English, to um, any untoward or possibly offensive words, you know, things of that nature? Um, then if we are going to go into multiple language markets with that name, we'll usually enlist the services of a linguistic firm to make sure that, you know, translation uh, doesn't produce any problems. You know, there's the, there's the sort of paradigm case study of the Chevy Nova, which um, Nova means doesn't go in Spanish. So uh, n- needless to say, it wasn't a smash hit in Latin language markets. You know, that's, that's the one that everyone talks about. So we try to avoid... Uh, you know, things like that. So that's the filtration piece of it. Um, Once that's done, then it's really finalizing. It's like once you've driven all these names through these filters, what are the five, ideally five to ten, that um, having, having, you know, met the the requirements of the strategic brief, um, what's left on the table? And and then it really becomes a matter of um, 
sitting down with your client and just trying to figure out of the available safe alternatives, which one do you go with? And then, of course, there's, a, there's another piece to it I think I should add to that, which is um, implementation. It's a huge thing because once you have decided on a name and you go forward with the name, there's all sorts of protocol around introducing it, you know, introducing it internally to the employee pool, announcing it through press releases and various other communications to the public and to the market. And um, that's particularly important because one of the things that I've come to realize in doing this for a long time is that the large majority of naming is really renaming. Um, and I think that's why, and we'll probably get into this later, why there's such great emotion around naming projects. And we've talked about this a lot. Mm-hmm. It just it, It's like no other exercise in branding and promotion. Naming just seems to bring out um, incredible angst and passion in clients. And uh, it's, it's just remarkable to watch. And I think part of it is the fact that in most instances, maybe it's a merger or an acquisition or whatever it may be, um, or a strategic change of direction that calls for a name change, it's it's giving up what you've had. And it's interesting that, you know, uh, again, I've been thinking about this in, in larger terms. We talk about naming kind of in isolation, but to me, naming is inseparable from identity. If you name or you rename, you're always tampering with the core of your identity. And I think that, uh, you know, identity is the word that's not used casually or for no reason. I mean, because I think that um, identity, personal identity and corporate identity are not so far apart emotionally or psychologically as you would think. When you tamper with, um, for lack of a better word, tamper with the company's identity, it, it does get very emotional. Well, on that topic, uh, I firsthand have had the experience of uh, having a CEO say things like, naming a company is like naming my child, or I'll, I'll know it when I hear it. Uh, which are both very emotional uh, effects. And yeah. so how do you advise clients to, you know, to get past the emotion to focus on the, the, the strategic relevance of, of a name? Yeah, frankly, I think it's very difficult. And I think that uh, an interesting thing I've noticed about naming over the last five or ten years is that it has become much less about creativity. I mean, if you got creative people, it's pretty cool, easy to come up with cool, good names. Um, and once you take out all these other filtering factors that I talked about, I think naming has become largely an art of expectation management with clients. I think you know the thing that we do here now is we spend a lot of time up front before we even get into discovery, let alone creation, um, talking about issues like this, you know, preparing clients for all of these things. And um, I just wrote a blog piece because I was kind of inspired. I was thinking about all these issues, and I was inspired by it. I mean, creating kind of an analogy where I start with this little story, which is about this guy named John Smith who lives in California, and he gets a letter from the state of California telling him that through an impartial lottery, he is one of several million people who have been chosen for an arbitrary name change, (laughs) and that from here on, he's going to be Sean Getty. And he's got to change his passports, his birth certificates. He's got to establish his new name at work with friends, magazine subscriptions. And, and it sounds like a joke, and, you know, but, but I think there's a real point to it, which is I think this is the experience that our clients really have because naming is largely renaming. Um, and so one of the things I do, and, it, and it's in part just a humorous icebreaker, to these engagements, but it has a bigger purpose, which is to say, this is serious. These are the kinds of 
uh, ups and downs uh, that we're going to go through. You are going to feel these things. You're going to feel disenfranchised. You're going to feel uh, disoriented that that a piece of you know property, quote unquote, that is an integral part of your identity is being taken away from you. Um, so I think I think just one way to deal with it is um, simply to address it up front as part of a really critical expectation management piece um, and just do a lot of that kind of work right up front and, and to remind people as they go through because they do forget you know you, you the way naming engagements are timed and spaced uh, there's sometimes a lot of time between initial meeting and some discovery work and seeing some names actually so it's important to um, you know to space out uh, touch points with clients to remind them about these things but the other piece of it is, I think, that you simply have to make peace as a, as a namer, as a branding person, with the fact that you cannot, um, you can't stamp out the client's emotional response. You have to respect it in the end. And, and, and I found that, you know, clients really will clamor in the early stages for the kinds of methodology and rationale that we try to put around it. But then when you get to the decision piece, decisions are made on very simple emotional and often aesthetic grounds like I, I can't tell you how many times i've been in a room where we're deciding on the last three to pick the one that goes forward and people will say i like the sound of that it's short i can remember it stuff like that it, so all of that strategic groundwork you did gets kind of pushed aside i don't think it gets pushed aside in a bad way i think it's that that work has been done and so now the emotional and aesthetic uh drivers can come out into the open and push the decision finally. But, um, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's like design. I mean, I think a client has to like that name. And you're not going to please all the people all of the time. I think the other aspect of this, which, again, we address in expectation management, which is um, it takes time and it takes context to get used to a name. There are names that, that people are going to hate and they're going to really uh, – find themselves resisting in the beginning. Um, I remember uh, when uh, Anderson had to relinquish, uh, Anderson Consulting had to relinquish their name, their founder name for Accenture. I got called up by the Wall Street Journal and asked for an opinion about the new name. And it's one of my professional regrets because I panned the thing. And now, of course, it's a accepted fixture in the marketplace. It's a piece of the, the, the business furniture, if you will. And um, it's not because of anything intrinsically right or wrong about that name. It's the fact that with time and with a robust promotional budget and doing it right in advertising and public relations and in various promotional channels, um, they established it. They got past the awkwardness and the strangeness of it, and it became natural. Um, And that's what I think will happen with every well deployed name. So that's a huge piece of it, too, which is to say, don't bring us on to just deliver this name and then be gone with it. I think that the ultimate success of it is shepherding that along and getting people used to it, because I think nine times out of ten, they'll say, yeah, now this is us. Um, But it takes time and it takes context. And, you know, it's very interesting because when we when we do the work with the clients and we present uh, and this is egg on the face of lots of naming and branding agencies. Um, you see, you see these names sitting in you know uh, Helvetica type, swimming in a sea of white, on a slide, and people we almost c- 
collaborate with that tunnel vision that we try to work against. So when we do this now, um, we try to really contextualize the names and we'll take them and we'll drop them into copy they have. We'll tell people to go away with it, repeat it, you know, to themselves or or play with it in use. Imagine answering the telephone. Imagine what it looks like on your business card. <clears throat> you know, imagine what it sounds like when you're talking about it at a cocktail party to somebody. Those those devices ultimately um, smooth the path for acceptance. So those are important exercises to help, you know, to grease the rails um, and, and get people not only comfortable with the process and comfortable with the discomfort of um, entertaining a name for a while, but ultimately telling them this is going to get better. You know, you are going to feel comfortable with this at the end and just trust us, trust the process. Well, you make a very good point. A a name really doesn't arrive with meaning. Uh, You really have the opportunity to give it meaning, which is a wonderful thing to, to have. Yeah. Maybe you can talk a little bit more about that opportunity to give it meaning and uh, then therefore take that emotion out of it and, and really make it something that is memorable. Yeah. Yeah. We, we refer, we have a, a saying around here about empty vessel names, which are typically synthetic or neology names, which is a fancy linguistic word for names that are simply made up names like Accenture. And you see a lot of these names in pharmaceutical product naming Viagra and Lunesta and all these things. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, um, there, there, there are polarities in the conventions of naming. On the, on the one end, there are real word descriptive or metaphorical type names like Apple. At the other end, there's the Lunesta Accenture name. And I should say something about Accenture since we're using this as a kind of a case study example here. Accenture is um, the phrase accent on the future, just contracted. Um, so that's that's what that means if one were needed an explanation of what it meant. But to, to the man on the street, it means nothing. You'd have to belong to Mensa to figure that out <laughs> if you were even inclined to bother with the exercise. But um, whether whether you have an Accenture-type name or an Apple-type name where there is, to use your expression, um, meaning that, that ar- arrives with it, you can still make it your own. You know, Apple has done that. I mean, apple obviously literally refers to this fruit. Um, When it was first used as a name for a computer company, it was understood as a metaphor, although one might have sat there and said, well, why why apple? What are the abstract features of appleness that apply to a new computer company? And I don't know the answer to that. Uh, Tastes good, whatever. Um, It's easier with Accenture because it doesn't arrive with any meaning. Um, So it's easier to put the stuffing into that, if you will. But Apple means Apple now. I mean, it, it means whatever that company is, has, has meant. There's a, there's a quote by Paul Rand, the, the famous um, graphic designer, but talking not about names, about logos. He says, a logo derives its meaning from the quality of the thing it symbolizes, not the other way around. And that's a perfect theory for names, ideally, that even when they do arrive with some meaning, like a word like Apple or Caterpillar, what you do in naming is you break that connection, and then you establish a new connection between those things. Um, so people, you know, they, they don't think about um, the original meaning of those words anymore. And Rand says another thing, which I think bears on, on this topic we're talking about. He says, you know, the purpose of a logo is to identify your company or business. It doesn't sell. 
it identifies. A name does the same thing. Uh, a name and an identity are part and parcel of one another. You can't separate them out, albeit, you know, um, artificially. And good naming and good name management after you've delivered a name is all about that. It's all about creating the meaning rather than letting the marketplace assign the meaning, managing the meaning. Well, maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, trends that are happening in, in, in naming today. Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, uh, you know, um, a, a little quick history. During the, the, the dot-com explosion back in the late 90s and early um, 2000s, you had this huge proliferation of products and this huge proliferation of business entities. Um, and the trademark real estate was getting gobbled up. And it became tougher and tougher and tougher to get available names. And people tend, on the whole, to want names that arrive with meaning. Um, so what happened in order to get around the trademark hurdles and to own unique linguistic real estate, the trend was toward these um, uh, what I call neology names, the Accentures, the Lunestas, the Altrias, the Arcelors, all those, all those kinds of names. To a lesser degree, you saw people also going after what we call hybrid or portmanteau names, names like WellPoint or um, Microsoft, where you take two known words or word parts and you fuse them together in a, in a unique conjunction. Um, that's a little easier to get than something like Accenture, where you really have to do a lot of heavy lifting to establish meaning and to establish a brand personality. I would say that you know those trends probably continue apace. Obviously, the um, proliferation of names and products has abated or leveled out since that time. I think that uh, you know, I, I think that companies. Um, I think there's a bit of a move back towards eponymous naming, which is to say names that refer to founders' names, um, because you know they're kind of incontestable in a way. They're 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 safe. But I mean, I think that in terms of getting something you can own and be safe from trademark infringement, the the uh, the more synthetic kinds of names are still the place where where people are going. What uh, are there any other misconceptions in the naming? process and and you know i've heard that uh, let's just get our guys together and uh, buy some pizza and beer and uh, figure out how to come up with this great name that's the biggest misconception (laughs) Uh, everybody's a namer everyone thinks this is easy everyone thinks this is uh, cocktail napkin work Um, and it's not there is as i was a pains to say at the beginning there's a there's a rigorous methodology and process around this um, there's a lot of expectation management to do, and there are serious hurdles in the form, again, of trademark, linguistic, and URL availability. Um, you know, uh, there was a time in my career when we had a lot of clients come to us in the 11th hour saying, oh, we came up with this name, everybody loved it internally, and now we're about to go to press with collateral and all this stuff, and our attorneys have slapped the handcuffs on us ahead of time and said, you can't have it. Um that that was a scenario that I saw a number of times, and it happened because people had the misconception that this was easy, um, that anybody could do it, uh, and that there wasn't a methodology to it, and, and there weren't some serious kinds of um, systematic processes that you have to go through, and there are. And I think that's that's the biggest one, and that can get you in a lot of hot water. 
Well, you spoke a little bit about this earlier, but maybe you can expand upon the, the thought of really integrating design and strategy in the naming process. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things we do is in a presentation on naming is we will show uh, a slide with a set of names that are all rendered in simple generic type. And then we'll show the next slide where all of those names are presented in graphic dress in the, in the full-color identity wardrobe that they have been given. And if you just sort of do a little informal experiment with clients, it's really interesting to see how donning that wardrobe um, alters or um, amplifies the meaning perception of that name. So design is an extremely um, important part of naming, and that's why I was saying that, you know, um, one of the things about most naming is that it's renaming. One of the things about naming that has to be remembered is that it's really artificial to separate it out from identity, and by that I meant in part it's artificial to separate it out from design, because you can, ha- you can show a client a name sitting in Helvetica type in the middle of a slide and show it to them a split second later in a, um, a graphically drawn type with color and appended to a symbol, and it has a transformative impact on their perception of the name. Um, so I always uh, you know, like to work hand-in-glove. Well, you're going to talk to Michael after me, but work hand-in-glove with the designers. Um, you know, I think that they play an enormous role, and I, and we don't just do it as a serial handoff. Create the name, hand it to the designer. I really like to do strategy design and name in parallel and simultaneously to the extent possible, because sometimes design um, will create an inspiration for a name that strategy won't. So, um, yeah, they're all of a piece. All right. Uh, any other final thoughts, uh, insights to share? Any uh, boardroom uh, stories of uh, you know uh, magic happening in the boardroom and acceptance of a name or rejection of a name or just anything else that you'd like to share in terms of uh, the naming process that kind of comes to mind? Yeah, I've got one really good story, but how much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> this is my last question, so we have about three or four minutes. Three or four minutes. Yeah, I'll tell you what I thought was a funny one. I was working for a company that was in the um, – in the energy space, they were, uh, I can't remember the category now, but it was like uh, the, people that, the people that basically manage and oversee the energy grid. And this particular company managed the energy grid in Jersey, southern New York State, all of Pennsylvania and Maryland, including Washington, D.C. And I, I was never clear about why we were rebranding them or renaming them because they um, were located four floors in the middle of a field out in Valley Forge, and there was very tight security, and it was a very secretive kind of co- – I mean, a public company, but but still, um, because they managed the grid under D.C., there was a lot of tight security around it. And um, while I was in the middle of – we came up with some beautiful names for them, and while I was in the middle of this project, I was in New York City, and there was a huge power outage. I think this was around 2003 or something for two days. And when the power came back on in New York, I was sitting, sweating in my New York hotel room, and the TV came back on. It was a Friday, and they had 2020 on ABC. And featured on ABC for 15 minutes was this company and the chairman of this company, and they were being lauded for their heroic and exceptional performance through this crisis because 
they kept up 99% of the grid they managed while everything north of them went dark, <laughs> including keeping Washington lit and electrified. And I sat there listening to this guy, the chairman, my client, talk about this, and I thought to myself, it's over. You know, there's not going to be any new name because they just got 15 minutes of free publicity in front of millions of people. And why would they now change the name of this company, which is just given credit for all this? So we went through all this stuff, had these great names, and I just saw it get torched <laughs> in the middle of this energy crisis. You know, it's just one of those things. Well, we could probably spend the next 15, 20 minutes hearing more stories, uh, yeah. both successes as well as some... Uh challenges in the boardroom as well but uh well drew thank you you've done a great job giving us an overview i think uh for me a couple takeaways is that uh naming is certainly is a challenging endeavor at the best and that uh you've taught us that you you need to process and you trust that process and it begins with a strategic brief uh it's not arbitrary uh you begin with many many names as options and solutions and and narrowing that down and so it really does come down to what names are, are, are available and do make strategic sense, as well as uh, names that are easy to say and uh, short and e- memorable, uh, as well as the challenge of, of, of trademark. Are the, is this name available uh, within your class of trade, or will be there confusion uh, even outside your class of trade? And then also um, the challenge of everybody needs a good URL. It, does this name associate to a good URL? Is that possible? Uh, and then the emotional question of uh, acceptance by uh, the senior executives of an organization. And, and I think you also said it well, and from my experience, is that uh, naming is not a democracy. Uh, uh, it can be done a variety of different ways. The CEO can make the decision. The executive team can make the decision. But it, it needs to be a small group of people to actually make that decision because yeah. it is a, a bold and a strategic move. Uh, you've emphasized the importance of design as it relates to naming and the two of them together bringing forth uh, what the new corporate uh, identity stands for. And then I think you also hit the nail on the head in the sense that uh, the way that you unveil the name and then properly promote the name is the way to give it meaning is just critical to uh, to really ensure complete acceptance of that. So. Uh, yeah. Well done. Thank you. I hope our listeners got a lot of uh, real, real-time real insights on the naming process. And uh, thanks again, Drew. Okay. Thanks, Ryan. So, so you've been listening to Branding Business with Rika Spared. To learn more about our show, please visit brandingbusiness.com. We'll be back shortly with our next guest after this quick commercial break. There's something happening out there today. All across America, we're seeing encouraging signs of economic recovery. Businesses are once again thinking about new growth, and new opportunities are emerging. But it raises the question, is your company positioned to take full advantage of the economic recovery and the opportunities it presents? Maybe it's time to ask, how has the recession impacted your business model? Is your business as relevant as it once was? Should you consider entering new markets or expanding into new categories? And what do customers really value about their relationship with you? The golden thread through all these questions and the answer to each and every one of them can be found in just one place. Your brand. It's much deeper than your logo and much bigger than your advertising. Your brand is the enabler of your entire business strategy. 
Rikas Baird is a brand strategy firm that can help. They specialize in business branding. They've helped hundreds of companies from startups to Fortune 500 leverage their brands to drive growth. They can do the same for yours. It's really quite simple. Find out more, just visit brandingbusiness.com. That's www.brandingbusiness.com. And plant the seed for economic growth. Welcome back to Branding Business. This is Ryan Rikas, co-founder of Rikas Baird, and today we're focusing on the creative process. We're speaking with individuals whose careers are focused on bringing brands to life. Up next, we have Michael Dula, creative director and chief design strategist at Rikas Baird. And I've had the pleasure of working with Michael for many years, collaborating on great brands like American Airlines, Villaroy and Bach, and Hogue Hospital. So maybe a little background on Michael here. Uh, Michael's design work has been honored and widely published internationally, including American Corporate Identity, Communication Arts, Graphic Design USA, and the prestigious Graphis. His work resides in the permanent collection, corporate collection of the Museum of Art and Design in New York City, and has also been representing the United States at the International Design Exhibition in Ansan, South Korea. So, Michael, thanks for being here. So, uh, we're going to be talking about corporate identity today, which at its core is very visual, yet this is a radio show. So, uh, you have a little challenge ahead of you here, Michael. Yes. But at the same time, I'm sure our audience can, uh, can picture great corporate identities and cor- corporate uh, logos in their minds. So, maybe we'll start with that very you know, direct question. What makes a great corporate logo, um, corporate identity, and, and then how can that identity establish a place in, in someone's mind? Well, Ryan, first off, it's great to be with you today, and it's uh, nice to be able to sit down with you and talk about design. Um, I, I think that a logo's purpose primarily is to promote instant public recognition. Uh, a successful logo, first and foremost, must stand the test of time. And this is very challenging because there are design assumptions that need to be calculated and calibrated uh, by the designer as to what is inherent to an enduring logo. And uh, you know, boy, I just feel that the best identity designers have this innate ability to do that. Um, it has to have an honest expression to the company, the service of the product it reflects. And I think it, it's got to be highly adaptive to everything from a business card to a vehicle and digital media. Uh, and perhaps most importantly, it has to have individual character and a distinct essence that sets, the, uh, sets it apart from its competitors um, I also think that the best logos have a sense of discovery in them, like the classic negative arrow in the FedEx logo. Um, what I think a logo can't do is that it can't be everything that the brand expresses because the brand changes over time. Uh, we see this all the time. And the logo is really it's, it's a facing door or a point of entry into the brand. How the brand is communicated uh, is facilitated through an array of different communication devices like collateral websites, digital media advertising, and so on. And, you know, I always look back at the quote by Paul Rand, the forerunner and visionary designer of some of the world's greatest corporate identities like IBM, UPS, and Westinghouse. And I think he perhaps said it best that the purpose of a logo is to identify your company or business. It doesn't sell. It identifies. And words... Uh, Paul Rand's words are, are decades old, but they still resonate today. Well, Michael, you, you gave us some 
logos for some famous corporations, and I can picture those identities in my mind, and and they were well done, and they hold the test of time. So, what are some examples of uh, that you can think of, or good or bad identities? Well, you know, you're you're touching on a subject and a question that could probably fill our entire interview because we're talking about uh, a highly philosophical question uh, and one that deals with aesthetics, uh, employee and customer acceptance, endurance, along with many other intangible qualities that are assumed over time. Uh, Listen, I love design. It's my life, so I'm a sucker for uh, beautifully crafted logos or logos that try to break a certain mold of thinking that is expected Uh, a logo can make a tremendous impact. So perhaps, Ryan, a a conversation can be had regarding endurance and the business of how logo identities can either help or hinder the very thing it reflects. So aesthetics aside for a second, uh, two logo identities that have transitioned recently come to mind, Starbucks and United Airlines. Um, I think a fine example of, of positive identity transition is the Starbucks logo, and much has been talked about this, but since my days as a young designer, I felt that the the Starbucks logo, that is, the one that preceded the most recent update, was busy and it was poorly rendered, yet the logo somehow became uh, very well known to the customer uh, through consistent brand recognition, uh, and thus it became really a sacred cow. The Starbucks logo became iconic, not because of its aesthetic design quality, but because it became the brand and the visual beacon that represented coffee in the United States, uh, just a really powerful brand. And in January, Starbucks redesigned uh, its logo identity. Uh, it dropped its typographic name, Starbucks Coffee, from its round Starbucks seal. Uh, and in short, I thought this was just a, a, a really, truly wonderful move. First, not because Starbucks was moving beyond coffee, Uh, But it was that the logo was so universally known that it no longer needed its name attached to its logo to convey what the brand and the consumer was looking at. Now, obviously, we see this more in the consumer market like Nike and Oakley, where they simply use their logo and there's no type around it. Uh, They've been doing this for years. Yet very few companies, very few corporate companies have done it. Uh, Or do they have the moxie to do it? And, And so Starbucks did it. So kudos for them. Uh, on a side note, I'm amazed about about the amount of flack that Starbucks uh, has received by doing this. Because again, I think it's just a, it's a great move, and uh, it really positions them uh, again as a forerunner, not only in the branding marketplace, but in the in the marketplace that they're in right now. Uh, second, and I think one interesting thing to me as a designer is that by omitting the name, the company no longer needed to use its standard horizontal lettering. Uh, on signs on the sides of buildings. And, um, you know, just from a practicality standpoint, this saves Starbucks a tremendous amount of money in signage uh, expenditures. But for me, and perhaps most importantly, it really helps out the environment. Uh, There are less materials used, plastics, uh, illumination, electricity, all of this. And the brand is one that really professes this commitment to the environment. So, again, I think this really endorses a lot of their messaging uh, and the consistent messaging that they send out to the consumer. Now, on the flip side, I think an example of poor logo creation and transition is the new United Airlines logo identity. Uh, you can, Ryan, you can read more about this on my blog, but in essence, 
Continental Airlines merged with United Airlines, uh, and the plan is that Continental will assume United's name. Well, in May of last year, at a press conference documented by photographers, uh, the supposed new United Airlines logo was launched to the public eye. What was unveiled was that United kept its logo type, the United words and font, that is, uh, and assumed Continental's global symbol. And, you know, I, I thought that was really interesting because I'd never seen this done before uh, where two identities uh, of two different companies literally come together. They fracture. Uh, one keeps a symbol and one keeps a logotype. So on one hand, United got to keep its name, and on the other hand, Continental got to keep its symbol. And the old reference points remain in place through the merger and the ensuring uh, transitional period. And so I thought, well, this is great. Employees win, customers win, uh, and harmony, uh, I really thought, in terms of what this transition meant visually. Now, fast forward to today, and in less than a year, uh, really, to my surprise, the United logo has undergone yet another transformation. Um, and they've got a, a completely different logo once again. Uh, this kind of what I'll call jump-the-gun identity approach can be disastrous for a brand. And in this case, a United brand that doesn't have its ducks in a row, so to speak. Uh, I think that in today's business world, the best logos endure through solid design and great planning and oversight. Well, speaking of planning, uh, Rika Spirit is a brand strategy firm, and obviously we believe in starting with a well-defined brand strategy as the basis of any type of messaging or communication. And Moments ago, we spoke to Drew Latender about the process of uh, naming. Uh, in a similar manner, how do you build a, a brand strategy to communicate the, the brand visually? Well, you know, brand identity, it, it must be guided by a master plan, and, uh, and brand strategy and positioning is vital um, to informing how the brand should be perceived and seen. Um, you know, we, we breathe brand strategy, brand positioning day in and day out because we know it's, it's, it's so important for that visionary quest and, and mapping out uh, how a brand and, uh, is going to be seen and what the trajectory of it is and, and all of these other things that go into building a brand. Uh, brand strategy is our soundboard or benchmark that guides our approach uh, and what we do in design development. Uh, if our design doesn't perfectly align with the brand strategy, the positioning that we develop up front, then it won't float. Uh, you know, it gets it comes off the drawing board and it goes back into the trash can. Uh, our design team is is constantly tracking the strategic process as it takes place, and uh, this helps us establish conceptual ideas for the future uh, once it gets into the actual design process. So, well-defined brand strategy is central to communicating how the brand expresses itself, both visually uh, and verbally beyond the logo. Uh, I think that the, the best brand strategy perfectly defines the brand's mission, uh, vision, purpose, uh, and it serves to define what the brand personality is. And um, Ryan, it's these brand personality traits that are vital to how we start thinking about how to literally and figuratively shape the design of the logo uh, and the brand, how it's expressed, and the brand story that we tell. Uh, really, how to look at the brand identity at large. Uh, I know that you've blogged extensively about these guiding principles and how important vision, mission, and purpose are for a brand. 
Uh, so brand strategy is the critical platform for all else to follow. Well, you're absolutely right, Michael. The uh, the brand is the uh, promise of distinction and, and how the organization is differentiates itself. And these guiding statements provide uh, direction to everybody involved. And and, uh, and yet I'm amazed that, that sometimes people think that the, the logo is the brand. You know, uh, they get confused. And, and we prefer to think that the logo should represent everything the brand stands for. And you've given us some good examples there. Any, any other additional thoughts on just uh, that concept of what the logo can stand for? And, and well, again, you know, a, a logo cannot talk. Uh, it, it's simply an entry point to the to the brand, so uh, it, it develops its meaning over a lot of time. Uh, it doesn't come with meaning. There, are, there aren't any definitions that fall underneath the logo. So, uh, really, uh, brand definition and that meaning that the brand has over time gives great meaning to the logo. But at the same time, a logo has a certain uh, essence to it that it exudes, uh, and and we build stories around that essence. And that really clearly helps to identify uh, the brand's identity. Uh, and really, it's uh, it's up to the brand and the managers of the brand and uh, the stewards of the brand to, um, to actuate how that brand communicates for the future. Thanks for adding on to that. Uh, well, um there are a number of design trends that are always evolving. Uh, how do you look at design trends today as you develop corporate identity? Well, I think that's a great question um, because, uh, you know, designers are usually on the cutting edge of design. Uh, they're always searching for trends. And uh, the way we build brands, the way we build brand identities uh, is to make sure that those identities endure. So our, our company doesn't focus on these kind of fast-moving design trends, so to speak, uh, because those kind of trends come and go. The corporate identities that we build for our clients uh, need to hold up for years and years, um, and we have a commitment to doing that. So we stay away again, I think, from things that come and go very fast. Uh, what we pay close attention to, I think, is uh, is probably global design shifts as they relate to uh, customer or consumer perception or acceptance. Uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, AT&T's adoption of all lowercase letters for its new identity propelled corporate acceptance to use lowercase letters in identity as a way to communicate, uh, I don't know, what I'll call a more personal and human company. Uh, oddly enough, the new AT&T letters, uh, as an ob- observation from a designer, that fall under the symbol uh, feel to me cumbersome and odd, yet the design sparked this global shift with the way typography is used, uh, which is great. It's wonderful because uh, you can start to track uh, perceptions and human acceptance and customer acceptance, and all of these things are vital to the way we look at design. Uh, color is also something that can be forecasted. Uh, what's important is to be able to decipher trends in design uh, from what I'll call shifts in design, and that requires a tremendous amount of experience and skill from the designer. Uh, we have a design team uh, here at Rikas Baird that is extremely seasoned with some of the best creative talent in the world, uh, and it's second nature for us to realize that the brands that we build must be able to stand the tested time. So, uh, so Ryan, we stay away from jumping on the design bandwagon. Um, I, I personally have been building corporate identities for almost 30 years, 
And I'm always pleasantly amused to see popular logo design styles from decades ago uh, popping up again. But that's expected because good design is permanent and transcends time. So, uh, so really believe that design is uh, good design. Uh, is is really important for building brands uh, and a timeless quality. Uh, personally speaking, I try to surround myself with um, with books and references on architecture, music, fine art, and furniture, and product design from around the world. And for me, this stimulation somehow finds its way translated back into my work and provides me with tremendous tremendous motivation uh, during the design process. Uh, and I think it's. It's essential that uh, that designers have that sense of vitality, and uh, uh, that that goes into all of our work. And so, uh, uh, those kind of uh, of investigations and keeping current on information and materials, whatever they are, be they design, uh, be they visual, uh, be they sounds, things like that, uh, all really help the designer and help inform the designer about how to go about the design process. So, uh, just a few thoughts there. Okay, um, let's, sh- let's shift a little bit here in the sense that you, you describe that the logo begins the process of visually communicating what, uh, what the brand stands for, but the, the logo can't do it all by itself, there, it, it, and, and, and the logo also informs other forms of communication. So how do you go about expressing the brand beyond the logo? Well, yeah, this is a great question because, uh, as we've said, the, the logo can't do uh, everything, and it's it's simply just the logo. It's really how you surround the logo, uh, and that comes with being able to visualize the entire brand, uh, which is really the the brand's image. Uh, so, visualizing the brand beyond the logo uh, is what we call brand expression, uh, and this is truly when the brand's look and feel comes to life. Uh, building a brand's look and feel is a combination of, of so many different things, Ryan. Uh, it, it combines color and typography and graphic elements and photography. Uh, we call this part of just a, a brand identity toolbox, and it includes many, many other components. So those are just a few examples, but when these comp- components come together, uh, they harness the brand look. Uh, in the end, the brand's image, it needs to be distinct and it needs to resonate with audiences it touches on a daily basis. Uh, it's pretty complex stuff and uh, definitely not for the weak of heart. In terms of identity, I think the consistency of how that logo is used is critical. Uh, I know we've all seen examples where uh, companies who may not take it seriously enough uh, have their identity uh, used in a variety of inappropriate means and uh and therefore it, that that inconsistency i think creates a little confusion in in the marketplace and and we've even had clients who have taken so far to have someone internally in the uh in the organization you know call themselves the brand police or the logo cops and uh make sure that everything is uh, everything's followed after that after you establish the look and feel um the implementation of it uh and how it gets um prepared whether we're doing the work or the uh, the client team is going to do it. Uh, you need to document and put some of those rules in place. So, how do you go about developing a, I guess, uh, brand guidelines or graphic guidelines? So to make sure that everything is followed and uh, and, and consistent. Well, you know, as as we both know, brand consistency is is critical. Um, 
visual voice, uh, all of those things that come together to make a brand consistent. Uh, to, you know, to me, it's it's much like a person and a person that uses their own voice. And if that voice switches, uh, it, uh, it really throws how you perceive that individual's personality. So for me, this is an easy one to answer, uh, yet one that uh, I think companies continue to overlook. Visual and verbal consistency uh, as a brand expresses itself uh, is truly paramount to the success of any brand identity program. Uh, brand guidelines or brand style manuals are essential uh, and provide a framework to keep a brand's look and feel on track. In the end, it's really up to our clients to become brand champions uh, or caretakers of their own brands because a brand's image and how it converses uh, is very organic. Uh, it's ever-changing, and it must adapt to changing needs and conditions. So with this in mind, it's an imperative to uh, continually take care, monitor, and involve the brand uh, in the overarching brand image. You know, I always look at it this way. Identity, uh, in, in a simple way to look at it, is that identity is like a person. It must be cared for, nurtured, and taken care of for a lifetime. Michael, thanks for your time today. Uh, one final question. Do you have any other thoughts or uh, insights you want to share with our listeners? Oh, well, Ryan, thanks for having me today. Uh, just, you know, uh, my final thought is that there's no replacement for good design and great clients uh, who allow us to do our best work on their behalf. So uh, thanks for having me in today. My pleasure. Maybe I can uh, recap our discussion with a few takeaways that I picked up is that uh, design really begins with strategy. It needs to follow the, the, the strategic work done at uh, the brand level. It needs to complement the name and work hand-in-hand. Uh, and don't be tempted to get trendy with your logos because uh, identity needs to stand the test of time and uh, an identity also needs to be used consistently in order to be uh, to develop that that uh, that single place in a prospect's mind and also logo is uh, developing a perfect logo doesn't stop there it really is a starting place to visually communicate the brand and, and you spoke about uh, brand expression as a, a critical means to communicate uh, the brand beyond the logo and, and components like consistent use of color, typography, photography, imagery, uh, how that all works together is that that becomes that toolbox to communicate the brand uh, consistency con- consistently, which leads to, to clarity. So uh, great insights, Michael. Thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate uh, the advice you've given our listeners. Thanks, Ryan. Well, you've been listening to Branding Business with Rikus Baird. To learn more about our show, please visit brandingbusiness.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with either one of our guests from today's show, uh, you can find them at rikusbaird.com. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to Branding Business, the only show that brings branding experts and corporate executives together to explore how branding your business can improve both your top-line growth and bottom-line performance. To hear more, simply visit our website, brandingbusiness.com, or tune in next week to learn how you, too, can build your brand and move your business forward. Brought to you by Rikus Baird.